0: Welcome to the World Resources Institute podcast. I'm Lawrence McDonald. I am absolutely delighted and honored to have with us in the studio today, Rafe Pomerantz. Rafe was uh, at WRI in the early days. I've since learned, Rafe, that you were the, um, was it Associate
1: Director for, tell us, what was your job here? Senior Associate for Outreach on Climate Change and Ozone Depletion.
0: And Rafe was one of the pioneers in helping to sound the alarm about climate change and uh, is one of a couple of people featured prominently in a New York Times magazine cover story that will have just been published when we post this podcast. And it's given us here at the World Resources Institute an opportunity to revisit some of that history. And for a number of us, we're learning for the first time some of the things that uh, Rafe and others did to help sound the alarm.
1: Right. Because it was all quiet before the alarm. Nobody in this town knew anything about it. That is climate change or the greenhouse effect. One of my early activities was briefing people with the help and leadership of key scientists. And universally, there was no knowledge around Washington.
0: People must have found it very shocking. I mean, those of us who live and breathe this now, we're still shocked Yeah, it was shocking, yes. But if you're hearing it for the very first time.
1: Yeah. Yes. I mean, it was new, and they were shocked, and took most of them took a great interest. Some of them knew something about it and did something with it. But for the most part, people were unacquainted. I had just spent five years working on the Clean Air Act amendments of 1977, and during that whole time of dozens of markups, many hearings, lots of briefings, this subject of climate change and the role of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases was never discussed. This was in the 1970s. 70s. The early 70s, early and mid-70s. But
0: scientists at that point knew. They'd known for a long time that carbon well, was going to be a problem, right? Some,
1: some scientists, uh-huh. some took a view that the particulate loading in the lower atmosphere was blocking the warming and were thinking that might overwhelm any warming that would occur. But generally, there were a, a handful of people who knew it. And one of the great puzzles is why did nothing happen prior to the time when WRI and others were taking this up? It's a very important question because we're so late getting started trying to deal with it.
0: I want to come to that question of why had nothing happened before and even really why has so little happened since then. I think that's the fundamental question. But first, I think it would be helpful if you tell us what led to these hearings. What was your role? And the, you, the other person, I should say, a spoiler here, spoiler alert, the other person who's prominent in the New York Times story is James Hansen of NASA. And you were both involved in these famous Chafee hearings, Tell well, us about well, that, when, when that was but and
1: first, how happened. I want to first say, when you mention key people, the most important person in this was Gus Speth, the president of WRI. After he left the Carter administration and set up WRI, he made sure there was a team here working on climate change. I joined that team. Because there was that team, I could come here. And that was Gus's decision based on some work he did while he was at CEQ that was partly in, responsible, in response to the work I was doing at Friends of the Earth. So I give Gus a tremendous amount of credit and a central role in this. How it happened was that I had spent five years or so working on this at Friends of the Earth and involved some hearings, briefings, and so on, particularly with a partner a scientist named Gordon MacDonald. And we had achieved a good deal And these briefings, brought people in who knew nothing about it. But the issue still hadn't arrived on the agenda. It was not a public policy issue. And I made a decision after I left Friends of the Earth that what I needed to do was stay at it because it wasn't on the world's agenda. It wasn't on the national agenda. So I talked to my colleague, the guy who I did all these briefings with, or who did the briefings that I set up, Gordon MacDonald, who was a very prominent geophysicist. I said, well, Gordon, but he knew politics. He knew policy. He knew the bridge. I said, maybe, Gordon, I ought to go to the Hill to work on this. No, he said, go to WRI. And so I went up and I talked to Gus. I said, can I come and do this? And Gus, knowing of my history, thought that would be a good idea. And so he gave me a job. And I went to work to try to get it on the agenda. And uh, so it went from there to one of the things I did was reach out to the Hill to see what we could make happen and that's there's a story in how we got from there to the chafee hearings so you're reaching out to the hill and
0: the you're presumably talking to staffers and the staffers are going the voters don't care about this my representatives aren't interested it sounds too wooly or they said yeah this is really important let's organize a hearing what what kind of reaction did you get well
1: i kept i think i kept shopping around and then i sat down with a Senate staffer, Senate Environment and Public Works Committee staffer named Curtis Moore. And Curtis got these issues. He was very involved in the ozone depletion issue. And Curtis, I persuaded him, or suggested, and he agreed, to ask his boss, Senator Durenberger from Minnesota, Republican from Minnesota, to do a hearing. So they had the hearing. And we had a great hearing, lots of witnesses. But it didn't generate a lot of Media interest.
0: So, I want you to continue to the story. But when you say Republican at that time, was there a sense that it was better to get a Republican than a Democrat because the Republicans might not be open to this, or was it so neutral that you could have gotten a
1: damn? No, no. You need, in that day, Republicans were very important in order to form bipartisan basis to do anything. But they were but gettable but on they this were, issue. Yes, now, gettable. Right? Yes, there were a lot of more liberal or green Republicans at the time. The chairman of the Environment Committee at that time was Bob Stafford from Vermont. John Chafee was uh, number two, I think. He chaired a key subcommittee, so on. So there were very proactive Republicans on the environment. So uh, Curtis Moore said after the hearing, look, he said, you need a horse. Go talk to John Chafee. Chafee's having a meeting with environmentalists to figure out what he wants to do next. So Gus and I go to the meeting. Gus makes a pitch for Chafee to do climate change as a centerpiece of his work. Chafee agrees. A hearing is organized after Chafee makes a speech in which he commits to doing the hearing. And uh, this hearing is held on June 10th and 11th, 1986. We at WRI have a lot of input into who the witnesses will be, and what kind of hearing it is. And one of the things that happened was a joining of two issues, because some of Chafee's staff were working on the ozone depletion issue, and they were very close to the people at EPA who were. So the two issues were joined. I, initially, I was skeptical of that, but it turned out to be a huge plus. So uh, the first panel on the, of the first day was an all-star cast of witnesses. Bob Watson, who was then at NASA, who became chairman of the IPCC, testified on the Antarctic ozone hole. And he showed film, satellite film of the ozone hole. Then Sherry Rowland, who won a Nobel Prize because of his analysis on the role of chlorofluorocarbons in depleting ozone, was up next. And the third witness was Jim Hansen. And this was the first time that Hansen, although he had testified before, really got a lot of attention. And in his, that testimony, he kind of painted the picture of what the United States would look like decades hence as the planet warmed and what kind of the average t- summertime temperatures would be in different cities. That's the
0: picture of the world that we're rapidly heading
1: to. Yes, correct. He, he was basically correct. So that hearing, with the help, the media help. A uh, media person here was Lonnie Sinclair at the time. And I think Lonnie did a lot of work to get key reporters to the hearing. Th- and
0: that Lonnie was here at World Resource yes, Institute at Yes, WRI. yes.
1: yes. And, and in fact, on the second panel, the vice chairman for policy and congressional affairs was a former congressman named Andy McGuire. And Andy was a witness on the second panel. And uh, of that hearing. So WRI was present in all kinds of ways. So this hearing, though, that first panel generated headlines in the Washington Post, the New York Times, and around the world. The combination of seeing the hole over the Antarctic and a projection of what the warming would do, just the combination was very powerful.
0: I wonder if that didn't also then contribute to the confusion between the ozone hole and warming. And then, for denialists now to say, well, they told us it was an ozone hole. That's not a problem. They Some people said the earth, earth was getting cooler. Some said hotter. And it, it was maybe unfortunate that those two things were part of the same well, period. Well, I, I think there's a think. difference.
1: I think people getting confused, one can understand. They don't understand the difference between the issues. They're all big. They're huge. But there's no excuse for the denialists. The, they're, they're, the denialists, or at least the, the PR side of it, are trying to create arguments to – to seed doubt very consciously. Uh, I don't think the confusion part of it was their agenda.
0: So in the hearing that we're talking about was in 86.
1: That one, yes. Is that right? Yes.
0: So a little math now, it's been what? Now, one thing
1: to say about that hearing is that with our help, Chafee came into the hearing instead of saying, well, I'm so glad to be having this hearing. I'm going to listen to the witnesses and figure out what to do. Instead, he said, I'm coming into this hearing. He opened the hearing with his own agenda. I think there were five items of what EPA should do and what others should do about this problem. So he kind of forced the process to get some work underway on what the U.S. would look like, what it would take to stabilize concentrations, questions we're still um, wrestling with today.
0: How did you feel at the time when the media coverage came out? Did you and others feel like, We've done it. People now understand the problem, and the U.S. is going to act.
1: Well, some of that for sure. Um, I think we felt momentum, felt we had finally uh, gotten significant attention from the media, from policymakers. In fact, on the second day, the first panel were administration witnesses. And if I'm correct, um, Lee Thomas, who was the administrator VPA. Basically broke with the Reagan administration on these issues on both ozone and climate, and said we had to act. Uh, second witness was Richard Benedict from State. I mean, he was became a very important negotiator for the Montreal Protocol. Uh, so, I think it wasn't that long after it that the formation of the IPCC occurred. So I think all of that... Intergovernmental Panel on, on climate, climate Change. change. The, the first big international body. assessment of the problem. Yeah.
0: How would you evaluate efforts since then to take action? There's really, I guess, I have two questions kind of tied together. Why hasn't the world done more? And are there things that we, those of us, those of you who understood the problem in hindsight, could have done differently?
1: Uh, well, first of all, you can argue the world hasn't done enough, or you can, or you can argue an enormous amount has happened. Uh, we've reached a few international agreements. We've got national commitments to act. We have new technology. We have everybody in the world knows there's an issue. Okay, That's progress. Remember, when I started, Nobody knew there was an issue, nobody, and didn't take too long for that to change.
0: I'm told even illiterate people in remote places now know that there's an issue.
1: Uh, yeah, sure, probably in the remote places they're experiencing climate change. So uh, now I think probably the central tragedy in this is the politics of the United States. Uh, at this point the republican party for the most part is in a denialist stance that's a result of a lot of work by s- certain groups with a certain view of the issue plus the campaign finance laws plus the politics of energy production and consumption so you 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 don't have the basis for a bipartisan action still fact so when you yours.
0: say certain groups i've you know, I love it here at WRI. One of the things I notice is we tend not to name names. You're talking about the oil companies and the coal companies, yeah, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, that yeah, that were behind the denialism. And then they had their front groups that they may have funded who would help uh, carry the message. I think that denialist effort to seed doubt has been very successful, unfortunately. So you ha- have an enormous part of the population that that, that doubts the fun, this kind of science that's been nailed for a long time, and that has led to the polarization so much so that Republicans who might want to step out are afraid of primary challenges if they do, and we have to get past that. Uh, you know, the most important body in the world on climate change is the U.S. Congress. Because if the Congress doesn't act, it means the United States can't make commitments to the rest of the world. You can't anymore go negotiate something without the authority of the Congress to implement what you negotiate. Otherwise, you're going to come back home and you'll go you just you will be stopped on your tracks. They'll say no. So whatever you agreed to, you can't implement. And the Congress will not act on this problem in a significant way. They just won't. They've done a few things, like ARPA-E, it was a very important research efforts, like advanced research projects, administration, energy, to look for radical technological change. That's a, that is a central component of climate policy. Well, we're spending $300 million on that a year, something like that. Well, the Pentagon's high-risk research program, DARPA, spends $5 billion. Well, we're talking about the whole planet here the fate of the planet, and we're spending squat, really, on, uh, on the crucial R&D to have the technological breakthroughs we need to solve the problem.
0: What could the movement have done differently, given that the denialists came up, that there was a lot of junk science, that there were these front groups paid for by the fossil fuel interests? Um, are there lessons that we can draw from that experience?
1: Well, one thing we can do is not provide them with targets legislatively that they can, can uh, u- until we're ready, until that they can use as political targets and try to defeat people in reelection. That happened twice, and I was part of it. One was a BTU tax early in the Clinton Gore administration, the other was the uh, Markey Waxman bill. Uh, both of those, anything having to do with energy pricing that's significant has to be done on a bipartisan basis. That's you got to start with bo- leadership on both sides of the aisle. The second thing is I, I've been part of developing a strategy called the Climate Impact Strategy. That's where you organize around local impacts, and the the the, the, the argument for action on climate is based on local impacts. Now let me give you the big example. And WRI has been terrific on this. Florida. Florida faces an existential threat from sea level rise. Big. It's underway. The effects are being seen. Billions of dollars of property values at stake. Retreat is in the air. Well, if you organize things in a big enough way in Florida, the whole system has to move because Florida is the most the purplest of states. It has more electoral votes at stake than anywhere else in the country in the presidential race. So if the citizens of Florida get well enough organized, and that, I believe, is underway, that can help change the politics. We could do the same thing in South Carolina, Georgia, North Carolina, maybe Texas.
0: Well, and I know, and I'm sure you were probably part of this, but our colleague, uh, Christina Concini was leading our work on sea level rise. She particularly picked that because she said, you might argue about whether there are more bigger hurricanes or whether they're more frequent, but she said sea level rise is inexorable yes. and is clearly tied to warming. Exactly. So this is the one where there's right. the, the least scope for debate about cause and effect, right. which right. I thought was quite an interesting. Yes, insight. that's
1: true, and it's also visible now.
0: What advice do you have for us? We've just got about another minute before we wrap up. Those of us who are here at WRI, you know, standing on your shoulders and <laughs> thank you for yeah. that. None of us would be here without the work mm. that you and Gus Speth and others did. Uh, we struggle every day with with what to do and how to use the limited time and resources that we have. Well, what my it, advice And is, maybe not just for WRI,
1: but for the movement, cuz our our, our well, listeners I mean, I mean, are not just need, WRI we, but the movement. I, I'm a proponent of strategic thinking here about what the payoff you need is, and how you get it. That's why, to me, F- Florida is the case study for that. Florida, if we r- raise the issue to a high enough level of visibility, the country has to face the question, what are we going to do? Let it go? Well,
0: and it's interesting that Representative Corbello, Congressman Corbello, is the one who put forward the recent right. Republican-sponsored uh, carbon his tax.
1: entry was as a result of... Sea level rise. In other words, he had an impact to point to. It wasn't the complete rationale for the tax, but it was a part of it. But I think his whole entry into the climate issue was because of sea level rise in South Florida. That's how it was supposed to work. Now, on the other hand, the current governor who's running for Senate, Scott, is a denialist. Can you imagine a denialist as governor of Florida? That's how bad things are, can be. Leave us with a parting thought.
0: Is it still worth fighting?
1: Oh, absolutely. I think that there's—I'm a, a believer that we can—that there's huge amount of innovation we can do to, to work our way out of this. But it has to—we have to recognize the scale of the problem. It's huge. It's with us. It's urgent. It's now. So there's no time to lose.
0: We've been listening to Rafe Pomerantz. He is a former WRI staffer who was instrumental in organizing the first widely publicized set of climate hearings in 1986 and is featured in a new New York Times magazine cover story that is um, out this week and has given, I think, not only those of us at WRI, but people around the world an opportunity to look back at this crucial uh, history uh, Maybe feel sorry for the opportunities missed, but also I think draw some lessons as you have done for us, Rafe, going forward. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. This has been the WRI Podcast. I'm Lawrence McDonald, your host. I hope that you'll tune in for future podcasts on Stitcher, iTunes, and other platforms. Until next time, thank you for listening.